Well, um, you'll need um, your Bibles open at page 670 in Ecclesiastes 4. Life is short, isn't it? And yet many of us spend our lives, or a large proportion of our lives at least, uh, working hard and seeking the success that we want in our hearts. Let's uh, pray before I begin, shall we? Dear Lord, as we come before you this evening, we want to examine our hearts, examine our motives, and we want to make them in tune with your spirit. Lord, please guide us and help us to hear your word for us tonight. Amen. So many people spend their lives just working hard and seeking success. What drives a person to do that? What drives a person to work so hard and seek success so hard? Well, I wasn't sure, so I turned to my old friend Yahoo Answers, the internet question and answer site. What drives you to succeed in your job? Well, the first answer was very managerial. It came in bullet points. It said, challenge, creative, supportive environment, recognition, success, accomplishment, money, recognition, awards and bonuses, opportunities to advance. Source, it said, 33 years in IBM. I thought IBM was old hat now, but apparently that's all very enthusiastic. The second answer was this. I know someone who loves his job as director of information technology. He speaks to computers in his own language, in their own language, and he understands them. He also understands why and how programmers make mistakes, and he can explain it to them. At home, he spends all of his waking hours playing on the computer. But don't think it's all about himself, because in his spare time, he volunteers for a computer security group, whatever that is. Is this for you, Weber? <laughs> a third person answered in this way, what drives you to work hard and succeed at work? He said, a nagging wife, four screaming kids, two dogs, one parrot and two guinea pigs. My employer cannot understand why I volunteered to do all the overtime that's going. <laughs> well, what drives you and me to work so hard and to seek success? Well, as we turn to Ecclesiastes in chapter 4 tonight, we see that the teacher addresses this very issue. And what he observes is the loneliness of self-centered ambition. So that's our first point for this evening, self, the loneliness of self-centered ambition. Now, if you remember what we've already learned about the teacher of Ecclesiastes, we've learned that he is a keen observer of life around him. He's desperately trying to make sense of all the things that he sees. And he knows that he cannot fully understand everything. He's a man painfully aware of his limitations as a human being. But in some ways, he's a better observer of humanity than he is a theologian. To him, God is a distant figure who is inscrutable in all his dealings with human beings. In chapter 5 and verse 3, he says this, Do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart, do, to utter anything before God. Why? Because in his view, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Stand in awe of God, he says in 5, chapter 7. And the first, book, the first part of this book of Ecclesiastes concludes in chapter 6. And in verse 10, the teacher says, No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. 
So he has this view of God as a distant figure in heaven whilst men are on earth trying to make sense of what is going around them. He's a bit like John Bunyan, who uh, coined the term Vanity Fair back in the 17th century. Vanity Fair, if you read the book, was a stop along the Pilgrim's Progress, a never-ending fair held in this town called Vanity, and it represented man's sinful attachment to all the worldly things. So the town of Vanity attaches itself to the attractions of the world. It's a term that William uh, Thackeray then took up in his novel uh, about the adventures of Becky Sharp as she ceased... Uh, she chased after wealth and social standing in the 19th century. Vanity Fair is one of my favorite novels during English A-level. And taken from this perspective, we can see and we can appreciate what the teacher is trying to say and what's trying to teach us. So here in verses 4 to 16, the teacher identifies three roots to Vanity Fair or three motivations for self-centered ambition. Envy, wealth, and political power. So he starts in verse 4 with envy. And I saw, says the teacher, that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, so chasing after the wind. The desire to have more, to keep up the, mo- the Joneses, to have the, the latest must-have gadgets, is all powerful, very powerful motivators in our society. Some people might call this uh, competition and try to put a positive spin on it. Competition, after all, is the the rock bed, if you like, of capitalism. And it's certainly not the case that the teacher is against all hard work and achieving of success. In fact, he's quite brutally capitalist about it all, as you see in verse 5. He says, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. But the problem is, That just with Becky Sharp in Thackeray's novel, we don't know when to stop sometimes. Our envy of what other people have just drives us on and on. What we want, what we really want, always seems to remain outside of our grasp, like a mirage in the desert. You see, if you're an envious person, you will never achieve what you want because there's always, always somebody else who has that little bit more than you have. It's not a new phenomenon. There was a first century Roman historian called Titus Livius who put it like this. He said, no man likes to be surpassed by those of his own level. How easily we ignore the teacher's advice down there in verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil. In fact, if you're like me, who has a lot, really does have a lot. Relatively speaking, we have a lot And yet we never like to be told by other people that actually what we have is sufficient. I remember that somebody told me whilst I was in theological college once when I came up with this wonderful scheme to earn a bit more money or whatever, and he said, no, you have sufficient. Remember, you have sufficient. And something inside me doesn't like to hear that message. And the root of this discontent is envy because there's somebody else who has more than me. The second motivation is found in verses 7 and 8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. You see, the motivation here is wealth, or being rich for the sake of it, greed. 
Or as John Calvin put it, the evil in our desires often lies not in what we want, but that we want it too much. You see, the teacher here in Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Bible doesn't teach that wealth in itself is a bad thing. In fact, the book of Proverbs would make it clear that wealth is a sign of wisdom, in a way. And Ecclesiastes, the teacher himself, claims to be a wealthy man. But his point is that some people just want to be rich for the sake of it. Now, I read somewhere recently about the stress that city traders face in their, in their, in their careers, in their terrifically long hours, all that stress of working so hard, working such long hours. They sacrifice their friends, their family, and their health sometimes, all in the hope of accumulating sufficient wealth to be able to retire at 35 or whatever they want to. But what if they never reach 35? What if they burn out? Or if they go bust? Or perhaps they die? Their most productive, valuable, wonderful years are shot by and for what? Figures on inheritance tax return or a bill of probate. You see, the last motive is to, to avoid is found in verses 13 to 16 in that little anecdote about the king. It says, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. So what's the third motivation? The third motivation is this. It's self-centered political power. See, this paragraph about the king sets up a number of different contrasts. You have the old, foolish king who's replaced by a young but wise pauper. He is the man who rose from prison or poverty to the kingship, perhaps a Nelson Mandela-type figure. And it's no surprise that the people loved him and followed him for a while. But the kick in this story comes later, at the end, where it says, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This, too, is meaningless. In other words, even the young, popular king quickly fell into disfavor. His, his political influence didn't last. Look at Barack Obama replacing the uh, controversially perhaps old, stinking rich, and some would say foolish, President Bush, but within one year of Obama being president, his approval ratings had dropped from 68% to 48, 47%. And perhaps his attitude was changed from, yes, we can, to uh, perhaps we can't. Those who come later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, says the teacher. So the teacher's conclusions here are that hard work and achievement motivated by envy are meaningless. Hard work motivated by a desire to create wealth is meaningless. A miserable business, verse 8 says. And hard work motivated by political power is meaningless, verse 16. A chasing after the wind. And where does all this self-interested ambition actually get people? Well, the answer again is found in verse 8. It gets you to the height of loneliness. There was a man all alone. He had neither a son nor brother. There was no one to end his toil. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? It's a good question, isn't it? 
And many of us are living busy lives. Many of us consciously trade the ownership of our time in return for that larger paycheck at the end of the month or the promotion that will give us the status that we seek. Many of us would love to just work 37 hours a week. But what suffers when we trade that time? Well, it's our relationships with other people. You see, this is not talking about the person who is lonely because of circumstances beyond their control. Perhaps the person who's moved to a new city and has yet to find new friends. Or the couple who finds that they've been married but they are unable to have children for whatever reason. No, this is the person who has deliberately traded that companionship because they were motivated by envy, by wealth, or by power. They're the people who would rather stay at the office than go home to their family. They're the ones who go to the supermarket and see families loading up the car with nappies, toys, and children's shoes that only last three months. And they think, thank goodness I do not have to bother with all of that. Or they're the people who would rather exploit contacts with people to gain political influence rather than to make real friends. Well, I'm sure that none of us here would describe any decisions that we've made in such blunt terms. But maybe some of us are a tad too busy to commit to a small group or to help with a Passion for Life event. Or perhaps our marriage is coming under a bit of strain because of the hours that we're working. Why do we work hard and try to succeed at work? Is it because we want to glorify God and use our wealth for others, for God's kingdom? Well, all well and good, great. But is it because of envy or desire for riches, for riches' sake, or just for the political power that we can win? Contrast the other two American presidents that I mentioned with ex-president Jimmy Carter. He's a man who's not short of a bob or two, and is still not short of political influence. And yet Jimmy Carter is a Christian and he's a practical man. He's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And yet some of the happiest and most fulfilling days of his lives, he says, is when he spends time helping to build houses for poor people. You see, since 1981, when he left office, he has helped to build over 25 houses for families who don't have a clean, safe or affordable place to live. Every single year, Carter and his wife, Rosalind, spend one week of their time working with a charity called Habitat for Humanity. And they actually physically go with their hammer and their nails and they actually build houses and work alongside other volunteers building houses for poor families in countries right across the world. So when journalists go to seek out Carter's opinion on some big political event, sometimes they're surprised to be able to get hold of him on a building site. This man of huge wealth, and political power, working alongside poor people, helping to build them homes. I wonder whether God is asking some of us to look at our motivations and the effect that they're having on people close to us. I come to my second point, and it's a contrast to that. It's the joy of selfless companionship. Now, verses 9 to 12 here in chapter 4, are like 1 Corinthians 13 in a way. They demonstrate why you have to be so careful when you choose a passage to be read at your wedding. You see, we'd be wrong here 
to limit this section to an illustration on marriage, although that's often done in wedding services. Verses 9 to 12 are probably actually describing a journey through hazardous countryside in the ancient world. The truth it tries to convey is that humans have been made relational. It's not good for man to be alone, says God in Genesis. We are made to enjoy companionship with one another. Verse 9 says, two are better than one, says the teacher. And then he goes on to give four reasons why. So firstly, two give a better return. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. At this point, your ears prick up because in these credit crunch times, we're all looking for a better return on investment. Well, here it is. Find a friend and do things together. That will give you the best return. I caught a little bit of grand designs on the television this last week. I don't know if anyone else saw it, but there's this crazy guy who had hardly any money at all, and he was trying to rebuild the ruin of his house, which was located on a Welsh mountainside, about 30 minutes' walk from the nearest road. And the rain came down, and the winds were blowing, and they were worried that the new roof would be blown off because they hadn't got the windows in the house yet. And it was being done, all this work was being done by two guys, two builders, who would regularly have to go on the back of the other guy's quad bike to get up to the mountainside because their car couldn't get up the narrow track up to the, to the house. And the wind came and down, the wind came down, it was regularly flooded, and there was a landslip behind the house and everything, it was all going horribly wrong. And Kevin MacLeod just couldn't work out why these two builders kept coming back day after day throughout the whole Welsh winter to keep on building this house. Well, imagine if it had just been one of them, one of them working on his own. How far would that building have got then? Well, we can invest all our energies in satisfying our envy, our desire for wealth, or achieving power, but two people working alongside each other give a better rate of return. The second reason is safety. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him, says the teacher. Well, as far as I know, our two-year-old Lucas hasn't fallen down any holes recently. He does the opposite. He climbs. We frequently find him halfway up the stairs and then unable to get down by himself. Now, I don't mean halfway up the stairs in terms of how we would get up and down the stairs, but he goes up the outside of the banister, perching his little feet between the banister rails and holding on for dear life. And then he gets to about there, and he thinks, I'm quite high now, and I can't get down, so I have to lift him down. Well, <laughs> two are better than one. Thirdly, warmth. Verse 11. On a journey where there are no handy holiday inns or travel lodges to stay at, the best you could get would be to settle down and snuggle up to your companion in order to keep warm. So choose your companion well. <laughs> that seems to be the original context. But in biblical commentary, this has long been associated with marriage as well, which seems an awful lot more fun sometimes. Although in my experience, it usually falls to me to provide the warmth to that ice block that is on the other side of the bed somewhere. (laughs) So this verse doesn't always work, I find. Fourth reason is defense. Verse 12. How many old films have you seen where the hero is courageously fighting off hordes of attackers and has just been overcome and is lying on his back and he's got a sword to his throat when a companion comes into shot with the wine bottle or the other candlestick or something to bash the attacker over the head and to save his friend on the floor. When those circumstances, two, are definitely better than one. 
Quite often my children will apply this principle against me. Alex will attack me, my 10-year-old, then Miriam will join in, and together they will try to push me to the ground. They're big enough, though, for me to be quite rough with them, so I don't really mind resisting their pushing. But I'm in real trouble if Lucas, the two-year-old, joins in as well. He's small, and he's tough, and he gets between your feet. And it's quite easy for the three of them to push me over. Which is why the teacher concludes by saying that if two is better than one, then three is even better. Verse 12 says, has this beautiful enigmatic statement, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now taken at face value, that simply means that a group of companions is even better than the companionship of just one other person. If you try to apply this verse to marriage, then you quickly get into Lady Diana-esque type difficulties. But applied to friendship and support groups, most of us know the value of a good group of friends. So don't just find a friend, but find two or three or more, is what it is saying at its most basic. And you know that it's not just us here in church, Christians, who need friends and who need people to support us and to look after us. You see, we'll often look around at our work colleagues or the people down at the uh, sports club or whatever we belong to, and we see people who've got it all together. But actually, you know, scratch below that surface, and you often find people who are desperate for genuine, meaningful friendship. You see, we realised this when we left a village that we used to live in. To be honest, we had our village friends and our church friends who we knew from where we travelled into church. And if we're honest, we probably invested more time and energy with our church friends than with our village friends. But when we left and we moved to somewhere else, I wonder who the people were who missed us most. Who were the people who came to visit us afterwards and kept writing to us and sending us emails? Well, it was the village friends. It was the village friends who valued our friendship far more than all those other Christians who we had invested time and energy and emotional thought with because they probably had many other friends who among their Christian friends. And as Alan said this morning, if a passion for life means that you do just one thing this spring, then let it be that you go out and you make yourself a new non-Christian friend. And I think you'll be amazed at how much that friendship will be returned and the opportunities which will be opened up to you. You see, when all is said and done, we're not made for self-centred ambition. We are made for relationships, for companionship. And the only thing that stops us from enjoying relationships is good, old-fashioned sin. It is the self-centredness of our lives. You see, here the teacher has spoken of envy and wealth and political power, but it's sin in all its forms that spoils our relationships and stops us from enjoying others. And how can we be rescued from that sin? Well, of course, that brings me back again to verse 12. It may not be the natural interpretation of the text, but ever since the second century, the church fathers have been saying that the third chord can represent Christ. And it is a beautiful picture. Two friends or a married couple can support each other, but by intertwining their life with Christ, they make a cord that is not quickly broken. 
And the interpretation has this going forward. As we know very well from all our Christmas services, one name for Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The teacher said that God is in heaven, but you are on earth, so let your words be few. But only a God who is prepared to come out of his heaven and to be with us here on earth and yet to remain without sin is able to rescue you and me from our sin, which ruins our relationships and deserves God's holy condemnation. So this is our God, the God who sent his only beloved son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, to suffer many things, to be killed, to rise again after three days, so that our sin might be taken away. So let me urge you, make a friend for a passion for life this month. And maybe they too will get to know Jesus and have their sin taken away too. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your word that speaks to us things that sometimes we don't want to hear, sometimes things that are hard, sometimes things we'd really rather avoid. But Lord, we praise you for the simple practical wisdom of this section of Ecclesiastes. And we pray that in all our energy and time and investment, we would seek to have great relationships, to find new companions, to find new friends, and to look after them as you have looked after us. Amen.